Okay, well, welcome to this inaugural international meeting of the different um, FSU organizations around the world. Um, I'm Toby Young. I'm the General Secretary of the UK Free Speech Union. And uh, do you guys want to introduce yourselves? Sure. Um, I'm Sarah Gon. I'm the Director of the Free Speech Union in South Africa. We're new, so we got a lot to learn from you guys, but perhaps some of the things we'll impart will uh, be, hopefully will be a bit interesting. Well, and, and good morning here. Uh, good evening for you guys. This is one of the joys of doing international meetings, I guess. I'm uh, Jonathan Ayling, the Chief Executive of the Free Speech Union New Zealand. And I, I'm not, how would we describe the relationship between the FSUs? I think um, uh, you are both um, wholly autonomous, independent organisations. Um, but um, I think we have licensed to, to you um, the right to use the FSU name and our branding and some of our content on our website if you want to use it. That's right. And as a, I guess, a sister group of organizations that respond philosophically more to the uh, to the attempts to censor in the Anglosphere, we come from a common goal, don't we? And it's more our inspiration than anything that combines us. Yes. Yeah. Well, I thought we um, we should talk uh, specifically um, about um, the issue of hate speech and how hate speech is being used um, to censor speech uh, in all three of our mm. respective countries. Um, it's, uh, and as, as, as I'm sure you both know, in America, no attempt to prohibit hate speech has um, survived a First Amendment challenge. Um, but we don't have the First Amendment in the UK. So we do have some hate speech laws and there is a gradual accretion of these laws. So there are um, more and more things are being designated as hateful. Um, uh, and that's certainly true of the um, Hate Crime and Public Order Scotland Act, which received royal assent a couple of years ago, but weirdly still hasn't been activated. I think in part because the Scottish police and judiciary have said, the moment you activate this, we're going to be absolutely deluged mm. with criminal complaints, which will then be obliged to investigate. And we just lack the capacity to do that. We're already completely overwhelmed. And if you create this whole new plethora of speech crimes, we're just going to, we're just going to go under. Um, mm. So they haven't yet worked out how to solve that problem. And in the meantime, it's received royal assent, but it hasn't been activated. Um, but um, there's a new development here. I don't know if there are any parallels in South Africa or New Zealand, which is the online safety bill. Mm. And the online safety bill originally had a clause in it which um, obliged social media companies that, that are within scope of Ofcom, which is our state broadcasting regulator but is is going to be given um, the job of regulating social media so social media companies within scope of ofcom would have to say in their terms of service how they intend to address legal but harmful speech um, and uh, the legal but harmful speech the companies were going to be 
um, obliged to say how they intended to address in their terms of service were going to be defined separately in a separate supplementary piece of legislation, a statutory instrument that was going to be brought forward by the secretary, the digital secretary. Um, and the digital secretary, as was Nadine Dorries, had published an indicative list of what was likely to be in this statutory instrument and specifically content that was legal but harmful to adults included um, abusive content, um, that is, abusing people um, uh, based on their possession of various protected characteristics, such as ethnicity, um, uh, gender reassignment, and so forth. Um, now, that's sort of gone and sort of hasn't gone. Um, the, the, the idea that legal but harmful content that the companies will be forced to address um, should appear in a statutory instrument, that's gone. Instead, um, that content um, has been placed in another clause of the bill. Um, and um, instead of saying how they're going to address this content, um, in-scope social media providers have to say um, uh, what, what tools they're going to equip users with if they don't want to see this content. Um, so the concept of content that's legal but hateful, essentially lawful but awful, um, uh, is still there in the bill um and uh but um i think there's a it's a slight improvement insofar as um making it a legal requirement for social media companies to say how they intend to address this content um is a way of sort of nudging them to prohibit it i mean that's the easiest way of addressing it just outright mm -hmm. prohibiting it and so they they they've 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 in a way given social media companies slightly more latitude by saying you don't have to prescribe it if you don't want to, but you have to provide users with the tools to do so if they don't want to see it. Um, and, 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 and I think um, that will result in um, swathes of content being removed, mm. we think, unless the bill is amended by default. So the risk that poses to free speech is that big social media providers like Twitter and YouTube and Facebook will have their... Uh, settings on safe by default. So if you want to see content um, that's a, a bit more controversial and uh, which, uh, which, the, which the providers are required to say how they intend to protect people from if they don't want to see it, you'll have to go into your settings and sort of dial down the safetyness of them. Um, and we think that's quite uh, problematic. And we're we're trying to amend the online safety bill. This is the free speech you mean. I think your use of the word safe is exactly appropriate there. Because I think some listeners may be watching this going, well, why would people want to watch graphic content or, or gross obscenity? You know, surely most people wouldn't want to switch those safety settings off. And, and they're probably quite right in that regard. But what we're really talking about is, maybe slightly more provocative opinions or maybe dissenting opinions. And and do we want a society that is defined, has defined its entire conversation by safety? That's really where the value of free speech comes in. So it's not um, that we're necessarily advocating for the lawful but awful content itself. Really, it's the capacity to have a robust conversation that, that will risk offence uh, in order to continue to progress these conversations. And, and if we turn the safety settings on across society for that, it's troubling to see how we'll continue to move forward in these conversations. Yes. I think it's, uh, uh, yeah, you're right. It's 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 defining um, difficult conversations 
opinions you might find disagreeable and provocative, mm. even offensive, as unsafe, mm. which is, as you say, um, absolutely implicit in 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 describing these settings as mm. safety settings or safety mm. tools. Mm. Um, and that suggests that um, the lifeblood of democracy, which is robustly disagreeing with each other, um, uh, but with a view to eventually resolving our differences, mm. That that activity has been designated unsafe, um, which is alarming. Yeah, I mean, what what's striking and and essentially it's it's not it's not as if we've been confronted with this for the first time is the question of when you have a word like safe, uh, it's it's almost terrifying because it's it suggests closing down in and of itself, and uh, who determines it? I mean, just to give you an example, for 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 a, a week. Um, I think just before Elon Musk bought Twitter, our little, our very modest little um, Twitter account, FSUSA, um, was closed down. Um, and of course, I mean, all one can do is write and say, we have absolutely no idea, you know, in, I, mean, I didn't want to say we don't know what your terms are, but we didn't know what their terms are. We, we hadn't paid much attention. Um, but we couldn't possibly think of anything that we'd said that that, that could cause such fear. Um, it seemed to have been resolved within a day or two, but it literally something as in absolutely small and as innocuous as our sort of new account went down. And it's it's just the, the, there's something really creepy about watching hard won rights, uh, the sort of the result of the Enlightenment having been realised. Um, and having that ability to speak freely, which has got to be the most foundational freedom to any other freedom that one can benefit from in society, that anyone could determine or make the decision as to what those things are. I mean, the very idea that um, a Mark Zuckerberg could decide that X is unsafe, unless, of course, the FBI uh, advises him as such, is uh, it, it, it's bizarre, not only on its own terms, but also by the virtue of the fact that the societies that have experienced free speech um, have benefited hugely from it. They, they are stronger, richer societies in every sense of the word. Yeah. I guess let's try and um, steel man this idea that certain points of view are unsafe and it's right to protect people from them. Um, so um, when um, people claim that certain points of view, I mean, let's take take as an example um, uh, saying that trans women aren't women. That would be something that many people think is an unsafe opinion to express and in some way harms um, trans people, um, trans women. And and I guess they mean it in, in three ways. Um, first of all, they mean it, they mean that um, just hearing that may prompt some people to actually commit violent acts against trans trans women. Um, uh, and I suppose you could say, well, where's your evidence? Mm -hmm. um, is that um, is there really a causal connection between hearing those sorts of opinions and violent acts? But they could say, well, even if there's a possibility, even if it's improbable that it will lead to violence against trans women, if that's even a possibility, if it conceivably could, then that's reason enough to ban it. If we protect one trans person from violence, then that's reason enough to prohibit people being able to say um, 
uh, trans women aren't women. And then there's a second argument, a second form of harm they're thinking of, which is psychological harm. Okay, it may not lead to violence against trans women, but it could it could be traumatic for them to hear that. Um, uh, they're already psychologically fragile, vulnerable, um, uh, at least some trans women are, and merely to hear people say that uh, what they perceive to be something transphobic and bigoted and hateful will cause them serious psychological trauma. Not all of them, but some of them. And we have a duty, a moral duty, to prevent that harm befalling an already beleaguered, at-risk, mm -hmm. vulnerable group. I think you can you can sort of say, well, you know, should, should decisions about what speech to ban, not to ban, be informed by, by that kind of extreme safetyism isn't that a kind of over application of the precautionary principle do we really want to restrict speech if it could harm people in those ways without any evidence that it's likely to but then there's a third argument which i think is harder to rebut which is that um the trans woman will say that her very identity depends upon a conceptual framework um which um she believes to be true which is that sex is a social construct um, uh, and it's a spectrum. It's not binary. It's not immutable. And it's perfectly possible for people to be born in the wrong body and so on and so forth. And if you challenge that conceptual framework, if you say no, sex is binary and immutable and trans women aren't women because they don't possess the appropriate chromosomes, um, you are challenging that conceptual framework. And by doing so, you're challenging the foundation of their identity. That's what they mean, I think, when they say that you're, they're being erased by hate speech. Um, uh, 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 so in that sense, they're made to feel unsafe in that their identity is contingent upon um, a, a rather contentious theoretical framework, which may be at odds with reality. But nonetheless, you are, in a sense, erasing their identity if you point out the kind of inconsistencies in that framework, or if you say it's completely at odds with biological reality. Um, uh, and that's so they think they should be protected from people making that kind of challenge to something that is at the root, the core of their identity and the, the people they believe themselves to be. How do we respond to that? I, I would say that you have um, decreasing strengths in those arguments as you go, because with the first point that you started with, that that speech uh, that denies the validity of another's um, self-description uh, can promote violence. Uh, I would say, yes, and, and as free speech advocates, we must not shy away from that reality. Uh, you know, there, there are some that I come across that they in, in our movement that go sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me and, and almost try to rob speech of, of any real power. The only reason I am a free speech advocate is because I truly believe speech does have such enormous power and we need to allow that power to help develop our societies. But there can be a cost with that as well. And, you know, you look at, you look at the conversation in the United States around is a black man 60% of a white man. They were denying the full humanity of, of those individuals as well. And of course, that frequently and tragically led to, to violence. And so I think with that point, uh, we, we have to concede, yes, if, if we allow the, this uh, conversation to be defined by particularly hateful, uh, dismissive rhetoric, 
there could be uh, violent consequences from that. And of course, that would be on be beyond the, the free speech pale. But then we progress more and more towards it, this, this notion that uh, that speech is violence and that it has a psychological offense. And then even more, that even just denying my identity at all is off the table. And I think within that more and more, we not only try and stop someone from physically impacting us, but we try and control their words. We try and control their thoughts ultimately. And so I think there's a progression there of weakening arguments that actually defy what free speech can do. If you look at the last one, what you're saying there about identity, every identity in our in our in our societies have to validate themselves and often have to remain validated and withstand that uh, criticism and, and, and continue to insist on their own validation. You look at uh, the response of, of uh, some ethnic minorities to racists they are trying to deny the validity of their identity as um, uh, African American or, or or Maori here or other other um, races, and often actually in the process of validating their identity, they are stronger. They become more and uh, assured of the correctness of their views, and that's what free speech does. And so I think uh, actually you've set up three very interesting points there. And as we work through them, we see that they are grasping at straws more and more, and insisting they have a right to silence others. And I think perhaps the 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 trans conversation is different in the UK than perhaps it is at other parts of the world. With with Kathleen Stock and others that that have been platformed, it seems to have come to a different tenor but uh but i i, I think the, the general point around people being allowed to make statements make statements that that perhaps even appear to be harmful or potentially harmful that may deny uh, an identity or run the risk of psychological harm we must defend even this speech because uh, all identities that have asserted them well many identities that have asserted themselves have a good track record of actually using free speech to legitimate themselves. And, and, and you think about the opposition to the homosexual community through free speech, not through cons- controlling speech, they made their case. And I think uh, the, the trans community would, would actually uh, work more strategically if they use speech to make their case rather than trying to silence others. I, I have to absolutely agree on that because, I mean, if you, particularly, if you look at the situation in places like Uganda, um, uh, and, and Malawi, particularly a place like Uganda, it often comes up where you have some, you know, something we wouldn't even think about anymore about the legality of homosexuality being outlawed and literally subject to incarceration. And it's you, what you get a sense of is that you're dealing with a, a minority group of really beleaguered people who, by virtue of not being able to make an argument in because it's in it's a, they are repressive societies. Um, both because of the repression and the clamp down on their ability to present the, the very argument you're suggesting, which I'd agree with, um, nothing nothing changes. Mm-hmm. When you look at, for example, in South Africa, where the uh, acceptance of homosexuality and has been in the last 25 years of, of, of democracy has developed hugely. But you, in, a, in a country such as ours, you have the dichotomy where you still have sort of old systems of belief where corrective rape is seen as a, a way for men to deal with, uh, with, with, with lesbians. So we're very much that sort of mix of the two types of societies. But the difference is where, where, you, where the, those attitudes don't tend to hold sway. And have gradually, over the 25 years of democracy, people have been able to talk more and more, is 
you're not, and I think this is a fundamental thing about any form of of uh, of, of hatred or dislike. You actually cannot change people's attitudes to things. To to think that you can, I mean, we have it. It's a it's a battle now with the government about rooting out racism. I mean, with all due respect, we are nobody's going to root out anybody's hatreds or dislikes. But what a society does where it allows speech to be expressed on both sides, and therefore the tolerance at least is to listen and to hear, is that. Society learns without it being legally made legally um, an obligation is that you keep your attitudes to yourself, but your behavior is moderated by virtue of what becomes acceptable in a society that has more and more of the facts. And I mean, the, the awful thing about trans debate is, is you know, the, the fact that it's a specific interest group. It's the effects that it experiences or is worried about experiencing can be experienced by a whole lot of minority groupings um, and is experienced and has been for decades and fashions sort of change. So th- there's nothing in and of itself that that makes it um that should make it subject to not having the other side heard, particularly when you're dealing with arguments that essentially are you know are, are perhaps have a, a much stronger basis in truth but particularly the biological argument um and i've seen i've read quite a lot from trans uh, journalists who 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 clearly do not see this because they it, it disempowers in a way because it it that increasing victimization and that need for protection from the society makes them more more makes them more and more victims and they are not empowered unless they're threatened. It's, it's, it, it's not good for any interest group. Um, and, and trans to my mind should be no different. But with, with Toby's comments have been started around hate speech, you know, you think of the comment by uh, Mahatma Gandhi that you cannot legislate affection. And I think that's what, exactly. what you're it's commenting the, on yeah. there, Andy, Sarah. Uh, and, and, and whenever our states attempt to look, you know, the, the, I don't know if this is a term used internationally. In New Zealand, we talk a lot at the moment about social cohesion. And I think it's a, it's a bizarre and very clunky way of trying to talk about a, a society getting along tolerantly. Uh, it, it sounds like something something that I think would come out of China or Russia. I'm not sure who was the comms person developing that term, but uh, but we talk about social cohesion and, and, and that does not mean we legislate. We use the law to force everyone to stand in a circle and sing Kumbaya. And and, and this is why, you know, I, I think the, the free speech movement at times can be on the back foot a little bit of, of, of people saying there is hate speech, there is misinformation, there is there is uh, harmful speech. And, and yet it is kind of important that we let people have their say as well. And it's almost a footnote at the bottom of, of journalist articles quite often. Whereas in reality, history has shown us that free speech is the most uh, useful and uh, efficient rights to lead to rule of law and to lead to the freedom of the press and ultimately to social cohesion. We should be starting our uh, statements with free speech enables these freedoms. And there are some complexities at times that we need to navigate. But if we put it the other way around, I think our societies are then uh, primed to accept that the rights to debate and the ability to disagree is is crucial in humans living together in non-violent ways. Okay. So I think we've, we've identified um, the first major threat to free speech, which I think is something all three of our societies have in common, which is this notion that 
certain historically disadvantaged, vulnerable groups um, uh, need to be protected from hate speech because hate speech may lead to violence uh, being meted out to these groups. It may lead to psychological trauma and it seems to threaten the conceptual frameworks within which they validate themselves um, and, 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 and get a sense of kind of where they where they where they how they identify um so so that, that so there are these kind of prohibitions on hate speech um uh, and then i think the second major threat and i'd be interested to know the extent to which it's also true in south africa and new zealand is this kind of war on misinformation and disinformation which seems to have um really ramped up in the past 21 months or so mm. uh, to coincide with the pandemic and the idea that challenging the wisdom of the lockdown policy, questioning the science behind some of the COVID restrictions like masking and social distancing, and in particular, raising doubts about the efficacy and safety of the mRNA vaccines, that that is harmful misinformation and disinformation. And it should be prohibited uh, for public health reasons to protect the public. Um, and But more broadly, I think there is this kind of, um, you know, we used to um, uh, in the West, believe in the counter-speech doctrine that the mm. best remedy for bad speech, including false speech, was not to suppress it, but just to allow for more speech so the stuff which was wrong can be rebutted in the public square. And that was very much the uh, doctrine set out by Louis Brandeis in a famous Supreme Court judgment, I think, in the 1920s, and seemed to be the dominant view of the kind of... of, of educated liberal elites until quite recently but there's been a sort of change of view um uh, in the past 15 years or so uh, perhaps coinciding with the emergence of social media which is that now some speech is so dangerous so disruptive to democracy poses such a challenge to the integrity of the democratic process and may have played a part in some of the populist revolts we've seen in the past 10 years or so thinking of the election of Donald Trump in the 20, 2016 and the Brexit vote in the UK and the success of Bolsonaro and other populist leaders in Poland and um, Hungary and elsewhere. Now there is this sense that in order to preserve the integrity and safety of democracy, we need to prohibit certain forms of misinformation, disinformation. We need to clamp down on conspiracy theories. That's the other, I think, in the UK anyway, the other great threat to free speech. Is that also true of um, South Africa, Sarah? Um, funnily enough, not really. Um, and that it may have to do with the fact that when democracy began, people coming out of the apartheid era were free to speak out and did. I mean, letters to newspapers, radio chat shows, um, and South Africans have become, of, across the board, have become very used to expressing their views, good, bad, or indifferent, articulate, not so articulate. It doesn't matter. The space is there and people learn to use it. Um, we did have, again, it wasn't so much what was coming out of the public's, uh, the from the public about the lockdowns. Um, there were huge debates and there were letters and articles one way and the other. And we saw it even on our, um, uh, the, uh, the uh, Institute's uh, opinion portal and, you know, really some fairly robust stuff. And I, I'd get letters with a view that was, was along those lines was, you know, how dare anyone say anything like this because we, you know, we'll go to hell. In a... um, but it did, it, it was, 
we were allowed to have our bluster. Our biggest problem, in fact, was the managing of the lockdowns by government and the the severity of it. Um, for all the reasons that I think uh, certainly I know experience in the UK, um, our biggest problem, of course, is because of very high levels of poverty. The impact on 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 the economy was just disastrous. I mean, the economy was in dire straits before it, um, and they they did they started to develop a kind of anti-lockdown sort of process and position and that wasn't in wasn't prohibited the only problem is that once the government got that sense of power and and there's therein lies i think lies part of the problem um to get it to shift was almost impossible it was like they had they called it the national covid command council i mean you know cccp i mean it, it was it was it was it suited them beautifully but the one advantage of about having an inept government is that at a, at, a, at a certain point, it eventually couldn't sustain it. Uh, two years later, but from a speech point of view, we weren't that prohibited. Uh, probably the areas ours is just probably less and a bit more subtle. Is what we have found is to some extent in certain of the media, um, you often it will specifically be mentioned negatively. You can't get right of reply uh, if, if you are, and and in in some of the media and screening of calls. From the public on radio, um, gradually seen certain views heard less because they are screened out from from radio. But it tends to be, funnily enough, in the private media, uh, um, such as private radio stations. So it's not the problem for us that uh, that it is is for you. I think it's almost because there's only so much we can handle at one time. So it yeah, kind of that's interesting. Yeah, I think one of the distinctions between those two threats to free speech is that the first one often takes the form of laws prohibiting mm. certain forms of speech, yeah. uh, whereas the second one doesn't take that form. I mean, there's certainly efforts by the UK government that set up um, various anti-disinformation units, um, uh, and those units then lean on mainstream media and social media to remove content they regard as harmful misinformation mm. or disinformation mm. but there's no they don't threaten them with you know um massive fines mm. or imprisonment um if they don't comply it's sort of pressure but mm. it's not it's it's not it's a sort of indirect pressure mm. what about new zealand jonathan how much how, how much of the is 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 is, is, is there anything like the same threat to free speech from people who want to preserve the integrity of the democratic process and want to suppress therefore opinions they find they disagree with but we shall describe as misinformation absolutely the 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 notions of mis dis and malinformation are some of the most prominent in in the conversation around regulation at the moment we have uh what is called the content moderation review going on with the department of internal affairs is is looking at the entire censorship regime that we have here in new zealand i'm not sure what it's like in south africa or the uk we actually have a chief censors office here. Uh, I think it operate, operates similar to your Ofcom, but uh, they're looking at whether this is going to be entirely revamped. And, and it's all in response, as you say, to this uh, this elite hysteria, I think, that, that has emerged around what is at stake here. I think I'll, I would push back a little bit, Toby, at, at what you've said around the fact that this has emerged because there is certain speech now that is believed to be so dangerous. Uh, 
I, I'm not sure um, that's the characterization as, as I think the same speech now exi- exists as has historically existed. It, it's more the means of dissemination and the ability to receive wide followings. And it, exactly as you said, it, it's associated with uh, social media because of that. And so for that reason, I'm I'm very interested in, in, the, in the comments and um, the insight of Jacob Inchangamo, the, uh, the historian who has, has done a fantastic job in free speech, a history of, of looking at 2000 years of this notion of the idea of humans being allowed to speak freely. And, and you look at uh, his, his uh, very um, expansive chapter on the Reformation and the, the printing press. And I think there's, uh, there are many um, commonalities between the elite hysteria and, and the attempt at censorship and crackdown that emerged uh, kind of in the 14, in the 1500s around that period. And then what we see now through social media, but there have been iterations perhaps to a lesser degree over those times as well, I think with radio and with television and and uh, just generally when when the public and the the, the average man has access to more information um, that not necessarily factual information we, that's not a precondition not necessarily correct not necessarily eloquent or thoughtful but but an ability to include them more and more in conversations the, our institutions fear that quite often and certainly the elites and those that hold power are threatened by that and so I think that is a, a key defining aspect of the conversation that is occurring around misinformation and in New Zealand we we had um what was a a, a visceral and 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 at some level problematic uh episode last year where for almost a whole month there were about a thousand people camped out in front of our parliament that that had uh occupied the area directly in front of it closing many of the surrounding streets people couldn't access businesses there and and uh, even still there are very wide opinions on that it's similar to the trucker convoy in Canada in a way uh, took inspiration from there and and even amongst you know the tens of thousands of Kiwis that support us I think there are very wide opinions on what went on there uh, certainly the mainstream media's perspective is that this was a group of uh, of entirely misinformed manipulated uh, people and 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 an interesting part of that I think then draws in this element of uh of class in 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 uh who is allowed to speak uh, and how are they allowed to speak and so the defining aspect of, of that protest was that they were very disorganized um comms wise ironically logistically and in terms of funding and food etc they were very well organized but but their message wasn't very clear what they were standing against wasn't always very clear who was present and and why they were there wasn't always very clear and and I think you can uh, dismiss them uh, at, at one level but but I you know as I'm sure your organizations do as well, we're very intent on drawing in the left and the right. And, and those that are on the left in our organization that, that try and uh, emphasize the, the working man and kind of more traditional unionist perspectives and such, for them, this was a very key issue. They said, mm. they're plumbers and they're farmers and they're teachers. They're not comms experts. They, they all work for the government. Uh, of course, their, their comms strategy isn't clear. Of course, they can't all really agree amongst themselves exactly what they're finding is, but their voice still matters. And I think, uh, you know, within the free speech debate, we draw on many other civil liberties. And and it's important that we distinguish those civil liberties, that they're not free speech, but of course, they're founded by free speech. But we also draw in in many other really important uh, discussions that I think have been part of the progress of society. And and the the fact that even plumbers should have a voice, I think it's it's troubling that in, in 2022, then 2023, now we are still having to assert and defend that statement Mm. so yeah i think um 
you make an important point about um, uh, defending people on the left as well as people on the right, because one of the challenges we face in trying to um, defend free speech, particularly persuade young people that it's something worth defending, mm. is that it often caricatured as something which will benefit people on the right, but on, not, not people on the left. So it's important wherever possible, to defend people on the left as well as on the right. Have you had any success with that, Sarah, in um, South Africa? Yeah, it's, it's, it tends to be um, – there tends to be a bit of a schism. But, for example, I mean, certainly we – you know, we have a constitutionally guaranteed uh, freedom of speech, and the limits are very narrow. They really deal with um, propaganda for war uh, and advocacy and hatred – um, advoca advocacy of hatred based on uh, on certain grounds and incitement. So the two have to go together before it's it'll be circumscribed. There is legislation that's broader, and I, we argue, you know, that it's actually probably constitutionally challengeable. Um, but I think it's partly because we have we we do have that sort of that that distinct set of elites, but it's and but. It, it, it's it's relatively small compared to a population that is working class and poor on a, on a much uh, just numerically much much uh, not much much bigger. But obviously, one of the concerns is that the elites do then do tend to have the access to the to to the produce to the uh, expression of information. Um, and but you'll mostly see the complaints about misinformation, disinformation coming from the left. And it's the although people in at in the middle and and working classes will often be absolutely offended. You know how can you even say that one of our race baiting politicians has the right to to say something racist? Um, you can you know they they are amenable to understanding why it's important. And God knows we'd have to go to bat for the economic freedom fighters who are. Mm. Marxists in the world, you know, the, the, everything you got, can't don't possibly want, and and hate speech is very much uh, part of their armory. Um, but unless it convenes, it contravenes the constitutional. The, we would say they have the right to uh, to say, and so that's something we we feel is an important thing to to present. Um, but as I said, I think part of the part of the advantage is that the elites have. Will have have some influence, obviously, of particularly the mainstream media and in creating successful private media. But it's not; it's it's nothing like the the uh, the, the issues that the UK faces um, and America uh, the, the, with the claims of misinformation and disinformation. And um, I I agree. I mean, I think the 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 best way to deal with an argument is. The opposite argument, and and that literally is the way societies mm. move to towards uh, towards a tolerance, if not agreement. Agreement is, Sarah, you know, nobody wants agreement. I I, I wonder if I, I can just jump in there. Uh, you you said a distinction between uh, when the EFF is speaking, as long as it is still not contravening the constitutional protections of speech, that that it is your responsibility to stand with them. Absolutely. I I, I wonder how you guys are navigating this question. Something that the Free Speech Union in New Zealand is having to assess is what happens now, uh, even when perhaps it does contravene. Uh, in your case, the constitutional perspectives, but but actually philosophically, is 
still defended by free speech. We find some limitations on speech in New Zealand have been legislated against. We don't have a like the UK. We don't have a singular constitution. But mm. uh, but 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 around you, there was a conversion therapy legislation that was passed last year, for example, which, which uh, limited the speech of parents to a certain extent. And mm. and we we're kind of navigating now, going well. What happens if someone is brought before the courts on this? It, it, mm. it is ostensibly against mm. the law, but it is our still responsibility to stand against that and go, but free speech guarantees this. I don't know. Have, have no, either it, of you it is, it is tricky. And funnily enough, I was uh, talking to an advocate um, that we've done some work with, not the free speech union. We're t- too new for that. And talking about how in trying to be predominantly an advocacy group, we've got to look very carefully at the sort of litigation that we would be prepared to get into. For example, you don't easily want to get into defending the EFF's right to free speech because you, 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 by implication, people are going to look at the fact that you supporting their right to say the most abysmal things. So we, in that respect, we do recognize that we have to be strategic and whether it be by application or a friend of the court or whatever it is. Um, but I mean, I put out a note, I think on Facebook that said that, you know, um, people, I think it was bold as to say people have the right to be, to, to be offensive. That doesn't well, the right to be offensive in that they can say something or do something offensive, but that doesn't mean that there aren't consequences. And I think what we've been trying to indicate is that within society, both public opprobrium and um, a, um, pushback, as well as a legal in, in certain legal cases like um, uh, defamation, uh, civil defamation, we 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 have a tr- problem with cr- criminal defamation, but with civil defamation, you do take risks, and, and risks can involve. Uh, risk to reputation, uh, a whole lot of other things. But that's largely society's response to the wisdom or the um, or the ugliness of what has been said. And so what we're trying to say is that being entitled to say something doesn't necessarily mean it was a smart thing to do. Yeah. We've got a case that we've, um, we've got involved in over here which um, which illustrates that problem which is um, there is um, a Scotsman who said when Captain Tom, this Mm. hundred-year-old ex-soldier who raised a lot of money for the NHS by walking around around his garden during the pandemic, um, he died. And this Scottish chap tweeted, the only good British soldier is a dead British soldier. And um, his friends quickly pointed out to him that this was uh, unacceptably offensive <clears throat> and he deleted it within about 15 minutes but by then someone had already reported it mm. to police scotland mm. and he was duly arrested and prosecuted for breaching i think section 127 of the communications act which prohibits saying grossly offensive things and and this was judged to be grossly offensive and he wasn't given a prison sentence but he was nonetheless found guilty and wow. sentenced um and we're helping him appeal that mm. verdict um mm. and we hope the case will eventually go to the european court of human rights because we'd ultimately like to see fewer people if any prosecuted for saying something the state deems grossly offensive but it's quite we initially found it quite hard we we started a fundraiser to raise the money 
he, his legal team needed to to challenge this, uh, to appeal this verdict, and it, it proved initially quite difficult to kind mm. of meet the target because because you know it, it's not a very sympathetic cause, um, but I think it is important to defend the right to free speech of people even when they say things that are mm. very offensive. Mm. Um, uh, and, and picking up the uh, the arguments for free speech, it also I'm sure proves an opportunity for you to go mm. to your donors or those sympathetic and and bring them further down the line of why free speech matters and, and use it as an opportunity for education. I'm sorry, that, that that's, a, that's a shocking uh, story, Toby. Uh, I, I, I would love to hear anyone try and explain to me the difference between that and Salman Rushdie's fatwa. Uh, they Neither, uh, uh, anything more than offence, are they? Uh, it, it is to say that you have offended us and therefore there should be retribution for your speech. Uh, uh, it's interesting. I wasn't sure whether you were going to say that it was because of the gross offence or no uh, the only good British soldier is a dead British soldier, whether it's an incitement to violence. That's the line that they would try and take in New yeah. Zealand, which, of course, is, is uh, beyond the pale of free speech. But at offence, uh, mm. we have so many illustrations where it doesn't relate to our values that we've stood up against that in the past. Yeah. We, yeah. we had a very similar case, and we seem to have a racial incident, a public, you know, very publicly uh, followed racial incident every December because it's our main holiday period, probably the same in New Zealand. And we had that four or five odd years ago where a, a woman, you know, was racially offensive, but I mean, you could tell by the tone that it was, it, 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 her worldview was, shall we say, a little narrow, but she wasn't, she wasn't by nature mean. And she, the ANC dragged her through the court so quickly. I mean, she got every um, possible equality court fine and they were then going to refer her for criminal defamation. I don't know how they were going to prove defamation of 58 million people, but be that as it may. And the, the point was that, you know, between the sort of pushback on social media, the re reports in the newspaper, the, the reaction to, from her friends, to my mind, and I, I don't think I've changed my view, is that that was the solution to the mistake she had made with the errors that she'd made in expressing the views the way she did. By dragging her through the, I mean, this poor woman died of cancer about a year, within a year after this happening. And it, it was so, it, it was where so, the self-righteousness of the non, of the anti-racist, and I, I probably mean anti-racist, um, it, they sought to destroy. There they was no nuance in this. They sought to destroy this absolutely defenseless, um, this absolutely defenseless woman. And there was quite. I mean, obviously, you know, people people did take offence, but you could tell by the responses, angry as they were and offended as they were, none of them was going to slink off into the night and throw themselves under a bus. Uh, it just, you know, pe people reacted as one would expect people to do, and. Most people said what she said was terrible, but what followed wasn't was completely mm. disproportionate. Mm. And I think that's that's probably one of the key problems with authority in the elite is the disproportion of their power, exactly as as Toby experienced it, over the ordinary guy who's going to say something inelegant, shall we say, and mm. in this case, his friends put him right quickly, and that's how societies should work. That's how you, I mean, you learn very quickly from that. Tell us about some of your successes, Jonathan, um, because you have, th there was a proposal to um, uh, criminalise hate speech in New Zealand, seemingly as a consequence of the um, mass shooting in Christchurch. Um, but it's recently 
um, uh, been sort of put on hold, hasn't it? Thanks in part to your efforts. Well, well, no, uh, about a year ago it was put on hold and, and now we've seen them uh, fully back down. Uh, the the Free Speech Union New Zealand came out of the Free Speech Coalition, which was founded in 2018. And then, yes, of course, in um, March 15, 2019, there was this horrific attack where over 50 Muslim worshippers were killed in Christchurch. And, and out of that, a Royal Commission of Inquiry was established. And one of their suggestions was that we reform our hate speech laws. And New Zealand did already have uh, hate speech laws on the books, uh, they had never. There were criminal proceedings and civil proceedings. The civil proceedings had been used once. The criminal proceedings had never been used. So, uh, despite their existence, there was a culture of restraint around them. And uh, and the Minister of Justice proposed quite far-reaching reforms that would uh, both drastically increase the criminal consequences, going from three months imprisonment to uh, three years, and from seven thousand dollar fine to fifty thousand dollar fine. <clears throat> and so that was a really increasing the ante, as it were, of, of the states there, uh, but also increasing the number of groups that were protected classes, uh, changing the criteria for what would constitute hate speech. And and, and really, um, the, the technicalities aside, it came down to whether we were inciting uh, offence against an entire group, you know, just, just offence or insult would be enough to constitute that. Uh, and so this was really a, a shifting point for the Free Speech Union, which had gone from a relatively small volunteer organisation to to stepping into the fore at that point. And we ran the most uh, successful public consultation on a, on, a, on a ministry consultation ever in New Zealand and managed to get 80% of the submissions on this, uh, tens of thousands of submissions, uh, endorsing our claim that hate speech laws don't work. And it's, it's really that simple. The work of uh, Nadine Strosen, for example, is uh, very helpful in that. And, and, and again, um, not making this a partisan issue, people from the left, people on the right, but everyone's saying, actually, you hurt the minority, you hurt the vulnerable more when you silence the speech. And, and so it was through that campaign that a lot of Kiwis initially became aware of our work and, and have since gone on from that. As you said, the the, the response prompted the government to, to take a step back and go, hang on a second, uh, we may have opened a bit of a can of worms here. And and they, they kind of uh, fumbled the ball for about a year. And after some, some real pressing, uh, the government finally came out and said that they will be dropping five of the six proposals entirely and of the six proposals the, the one to increase the number of groups present they will only be uh, taking one part of one of the proposal which is to include uh, religious communities uh, and and speech against them and so so we do see that direct correlation between the the Christchurch attack uh, you know um, absolutely gross violence a terrorist attack against a, a religious community and and the claims is that there is speech associated with that to that point I would say that uh, no way to minimize the harm, the, the actual harm that did occur there. Uh, this was a lone Australian gunman who legally acquired a weapon and uh, until his manifesto was published, had very little presence online that would have indicated that he was going to uh, take a terrorist attack. So so the link between speech, what I think is a, a fixation on the pathologizing of speech as a connection to terrorist attacks, it, it may or may not uh, be more legitimate in other cases i'm not an expert in that regard certainly in this case it's not uh but nonetheless we we feel like we have um been far more successful than we ever thought we would be in in drawing a, a public consensus across the board around the fact that that kiwis do not want the government limiting uh what 
offence they can provide. Um, uh, and, and, you know, in New Zealand, we have a very unique uh, political situation at the moment. Well, we, we have a the German MMP system, so we were never designed to have majority governments as you guys do. But nonetheless, for the first time under the system, we do have a majority government. When we went into this campaign, we, we had no reason to think we would be able to stop the government from doing this. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it really, uh, you know, a shout out to the, to the tens of thousands of Kiwis that joined us in this. It's a credit to good old people power and and, uh, and from that, we have uh, seen that there is buy-in, there is investment and interest in an organization fighting in many other regards. So uh, another uh, success that, that you're familiar with, Toby, as well, is, is uh, what we call the Listener 7, uh, where a group of, of highly uh, prominent, some of the most prominent scientists in New Zealand, uh, wrote uh, an article about uh, the inclusion of what's called Matauranga Māori, which is uh, the, the Māori way of viewing things and kind of their scientific perspective. Perspective. Uh, these these scientists said Matauranga Māori is is valuable. Its cultural importance is is undeniable, but it is not the same thing as science. Science is a process, not an end goal. And uh, and for this, there was there was great outcry, and we were also able to stand up with them. and And uh, the the Royal Society here in New Zealand, the two of the, uh, the authors were members of the Royal Society. They were threatened to be expelled. We stood with them. We, we we've had uh, engagement with vice chancellors at universities around the country on this issue. And and through opposition to free speech, in the spirit of free speech, we have been able to outline the reasons it is such an important cause. So those are just two successes. But, you know, I think uh, as those that are part of uh, standing up for this basic right, there is reason to be hopeful. Let's not catastrophize around the world. Also, there is a a reawakening of uh, an awareness of the importance of this value. What about in South Africa? Tell us, have you? Have you um, I know you're quite quite young um, yes. as an organisation, but have you have you um, taken on any cases yet? We haven't taken on any legal cases yet. Uh, as I say, we, we we're really trying to solidify a strategy around that. Um, but what the Institute of Race Relations, which is the sort of parent body of the Free Speech, uh, Free Speech Union in South Africa, um, it's it's uh, very much the way we work is to make representations to government, to appear at government, to get petitions, to get into the media. And we've seen ourselves get into the media more and more, even though we're usually dealing with media that's uh, that's uh, not aligned. Um, and that puts us in quite a nice position to the FSU in that when uh, I mentioned to Toby previously, we, we challenged or warned, rather, a provincial Minister of Education that the... Um, in presence in the, the the now new presence because it had existed in the elite schools into government schools of critical race theory and critical gender theory was shutting really te- teaching kids to shut down speech and we we suggested that they need to be cautious about using consultants who propagate this view um they, and they ignored us and then the thing went boom exactly as we warned them against and we got a lot of coverage just by virtue of that so it was sort of being out there, even though initially it was only directly to him, you know, we were being sort of polite and helpful and constructive. And then as soon as it exploded, um, we said we put out a press release that literally said, we told you so. Yeah. Um, consequence is the uh, the MEC for, for education contacted me and said, can we talk about this? Uh, what, you know, what do you suggest? Blah, blah, blah. Um, so it, it, in that respect, it's kind of small. We still have a draft near law but not yet uh, signed into law uh, hate speech because they want to now put in place the criminalization of hate speech 
Mm-hmm. And that's what we're going up, going up against. As I said, my, the large organization has started that, and we will pick it up. And that is the sort of thing that we would, if, if it needed to go to court, we would take yeah. it to court. Mm-hmm. Um, very often you can only, at best, push in, push things into touch, delay them a bit. But, for example, um, on a related, not related to free speech, although everything has a consequence, um, expropriation without compensation, they wanted to be able to, what the, the, the net result is pay nothing and easily take land away for whatever purposes. And generally we're not too uh, sure about what the purposes would be. Um, went, went very hard, got a lot of public support behind it, went to, Parliament, et cetera, et cetera. They wanted initially to actually change a provision of the constitution. We went in, obviously a whole lot of other groups went in and that didn't happen. So they've now turned, uh, chosen to go uh, another legis- um, uh, legislation route. And the chances are that a lot of this that, that tends to have what I call an almost antisocial element to it uh, is like with or without, with us, without us or by us, however it, it turns out, Will be challengeable as as contravening the constitution, and that is the great value of having a written constitution that is liberal, is that the terms are generally narrow, and more and more as the as the government becomes as the ANC becomes more desperate about trying to hang on to power, um, they're pushing through more draconian things that head us in a more socialist direction. So it. In a way, it often it, it's sort of gives us opportunities to get in on 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 the legal ground. Um, we do for us the, the greatest threat to to, to three spe- sorry to free speech that we see is schools, universities, particularly in schools, um, and of course, you know, you're dealing with schools where the future leadership is largely going to come from. So. Right. You know, one doesn't want to see happen what's happened to you guys, but or what you've been faced with. Um, so. Serious uh, wins, not yet, but uh, we carry on nevertheless. I'm sure they'll. I'm sure they'll. They'll come thick and fast. Well, look, very good to talk to you both. Um, fraternal greetings from uh, London, um, and uh, yeah, we should do this again. Um, I think comparing notes is very helpful. Um, but before we go, should we just say to people watching how they can find out more about our respective organisations? So. I'll start. So if you want to find out more about the Free Speech Union, go to www.freespeechunion, all one word, .org. And you can join there. You can find out what we've been up to over the past year. You can find FAQs about what to do if you're asked to declare your gender pronouns in the workplace and you don't feel comfortable doing that. A lot of It's a, tr- a treasure trove of useful information um, and uh, content like this. Uh, that's www.freespeechunion.org. Sorry, do you want to go next? Yeah. Um, we're www.freespeech.org.za. Um, nice little tidy website and the thing that we do try and keep changing is articles under our news section articles or reports of of talks um we we featured for example uh some of the uh, one of the first wreath lecture and just to get things and that's what goes then on to um free speech um free speech what's uh, sorry i'm just suddenly gone blank um uh, free speech union of south africa is our uh, facebook page okay um and Twitter free is at free at Speech Africa. Okay, great, Jonathan. 
I, I think some of the, the listeners will, will make the same mistake I did when I was first hired in this role. I, I posted on my social media, very excited to be coming on as the campaign managers of at Free Speech Union. I actually tagged your organization, Toby, because because thankfully there are free speech unions around the world and we all use the same name. So keep out for the di- different country profiles. We are www.fsu.nz. Uh, and that takes us onto the main uh, website. Like the others, we, we have blogs and, and podcasts, etc. cetera. Uh, Facebook is our primary means of communication free speech union new zealand and also twitter free speech nz so uh lots of options there for fantastic content okay great well look really good to talk to you both and um best of luck in uh, 2023 very good bye thank you thanks for listening to the free speech union podcast if you would like to learn more about us or find out how you can get involved or support you can head on over to fsu.nz or check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Kakutianor.